Happy Father's Day. I think it's easier to be a father than becoming a father. And Pope John 23rd once said, it is easier for a father to have children than for children to have real father. And President Barack Obama also said, any fool can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. Being a father is a more than biological. It is spiritual. It is uh, serious and uh, humbling. David Ramsey, well-known Christian financial guru, also said, leading a family is the hardest job a man can ever have. I think the hardest time to be a father to raise children is when one failed and one had a hard time to rise above his own weaknesses and struggles. So what do fathers do when they fail and fall? Today's study from David's series that we've been studying in the summer can help us. Today we will reflect on Psalm 51. Why Psalm 51? If you look at the introductory note of Psalm 51, it says, For the director of music, Psalm of David, when prophet Nathan came to him after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Two weeks ago, in 2 Samuel 12, we saw one of the most courageous men in the Bible, the prophet Nathan, who publicly exposed the hidden sin and perfect crime of King David. And I call Nathan uh, courageous because others were silent out of fear and some were opportunistic like a Joab. Nathan was uh, faithful and obedient to God. He was not another enabler or accomplice of David's sin, but he was uh, David's true brother and a pastor. By the way, on that note, I want to ask all of you, are we enablers of a spiritual laziness and the worldly indulgences of our brothers and sisters, our true encouragers to keep each other accountable to God? Nathan's brave confrontation brought out another courageous man in 2, Peter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. That is a King David. Yes, for me, David was another courageous man in 2 Samuel 12 because he did not deny sin or dismiss it like uh, you know, other ancient Middle Eastern kings. For ancient kings, adultery was nothing. You know, it's almost their right or perks. Story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 about David's adultery and murder it's a very unique, not just in the ancient world, but even modern world. You know, can you imagine anybody confronting Putin and all the dictators about their adulteries and the illegitimate children? David confessed his sin. David was a man after God's heart, not only when things are going well, but when he was failing hard. And he repented while other kings repressed. So Psalm 51 is a one of the seven psalms in the Bible which are called penitentiary psalms, penitentiary psalms, or psalms of a confession or repentance. 
So let me tell you what the pen, oh yeah, there is seven penetration psalm, psalm 6, psalm 32, psalm 38, psalm 51, psalm 102, 130, 143. Except the psalm 102 or 130, all five psalms, penitentiary psalms, were written by David. And among seven songs of a confession, Psalm 51 has been the most beloved psalm to so many people in history. For instance, Athanasius, the champion of a, a Nicene Creed who fought against the Arians and the, his, uh, his uh, you know, heretical you know, Christology, recommended Christians to repeat Psalm 51 when they awake at night. And Savanola, great Dominican preacher and the forerunner of a Reformation in the 14th century, he actually did that. And then when he was tortured of his faith, and when the torturers broke many of his bones, his body, except his right arm, so that he could write his own enforced you know, confession, false confession of heresy, you know, Savanola wrote his meditation of a Psalm 51 on the paper. And then Martin Luther loved that meditation, that he printed that meditation and uh, circulated to encourage other reformers. And Luther himself sang this psalm more than any other psalms, saying that it is an ex exemplary song that contains all the elements of uh, repentance. That's why I titled today's uh, sermon, Model confession, model confession. Here in Psalm 51, we see three essential components of a model confession and true repentance. So let's read first paragraph, verse 1 to 6, uh, respectively, and then let's go one by one. So let me read first. Have a mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in the sacred place. Here in the first paragraph of a confession, David was facing his sin squarely and thoroughly. He reckoned with the totality of his sin, totality of his sin. He owned the responsibility by using three major words of the Old Testament that describe a sin which are transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. And we see all this in the first two verses. Sin has many dysfunctional and detrimental you know, dimensions. The Old Testament uses many words to describe it, and these are the three key ones. So transgression in Hebrew is a pasha. Pasha means a crossing a forbidden boundary and often translated as trespass. So how do you like uh, someone trespassing your, you know, your, your, your own backyard or front yard? You know, you have, we, those of us own house, do you have experience that somebody bring their dog and then dog, dog you know, drop the stuff and then they don't pick it up? You know? How do you feel? 
Even when our family intrudes our own private space, we don't like it. Transgression means not just a violation of a space. It's actually a breach of a trust and respect. When the word is actually, this word, Pasha used the authority figures, transgression actually means rebellion. Rebellion. So later when David's son, Absalom, rebelled against David and tried to kill David, his father, that epitomized a transgression. You know, for me, it's interesting that the first word of a sin David used was transgression or rebellion. It's because he's a king. So he knows the uh, acute pain and offense of a rebellion. And so today, first thing David said, I rebel against you, God, my king. That's what he's saying. And second, iniquity, avon, comes from Hebrew root word means bend. It means crooked, bent over, perverted, and deviated. And David confessed that he's a perverted user of power, wisdom, and sexual drive. He deviated from God's highway of justice and goodness for the king to his own wild rose of flesh. He abused his king's power to call someone the Bathsheba and Uriah. And he cunningly employed his wisdom to create a death trap to kill his faithful warrior as an accidental death. So this simply means a moral failure. And that last word, sin, kata, in Hebrew, signifies a missing or absence. So we have uh, English words like misconduct, mistake, misbehave. So sin in Hebrew involves a forgetfulness, an absence of essence in whatever the object is. So David was confessing that I forgot, and I missed to be a shepherd of Israel. So he was confessing, I was going astray from you, God. So here, shepherd got lost. Using all these three words, David was publicly confessing that he rebelled against God, he perverted God's blessing, deviated from God's way, he forgot God and followed his own desires first. From consciousness to unconsciousness, from his concrete act to his subconscious mindset, David recognized the totality of his sin. Now, why was David exhausting all vocabulary to confess his sin? Why was he owning it so totally, so thoroughly, so emphatically? In other words, why was he repenting his sin with all of his heart, all of his mind, and all of his strength? The answer comes from verse 4. David said, against you and against you alone, I have sinned. Two things here. Against you, against God, I have sinned. Sin is theological category. If there is no God, there is no sin. Seriously. Sin is there because God is there. If you don't believe God, you can do whatever you want. You know, I grew up in the, as a Buddhist, and the Buddhism is a non-theistic religion. So we don't have a you know, strong concept of a sin. It's a more like you know, craving or you know, lack of enlightenment and ignorance and things like that. So when I first explored the Christianity, I noticed that they're obsessed with the sin thing. Sin, sinners, salvation, savior. Oh, this Christian, so, you know, whatever, so, whatever. Sin-obsessed people. 
They're not free or spiritual, deep like a Buddhist, you know. And then I came to read uh, Immanuel Kant, the famous uh, German philosopher of uh, you know, 18th century, the idealist, whatever, the realist, realism. And then Kant is a very interesting figure because he's a father, he's a son of a, a Lutheran pastor, and uh, he is a father of uh, agnosticism. Do you know that? Agnosticism is that, uh, is that uh, you cannot know anything about God. He's not denying God. He's denying possibility of knowing God. You know, Kant is a very smart philosopher. So he said, you know, unlike John Locke, that a mind is not blank. Mind is very active. It's not a passive. And the space and time is the frame where mind works. Now, when it comes to God, God transcends the space and time. Therefore, God is a bigger than human mind. So Kant is not denying existence of God. He's denied a knowability of a human mind about God. So he simply said, you cannot know about God. You can say whether it exists or not, period. Because you are not, I mean, you know, you are like a you know, little ant and the God is like a, you know, elephant. How can an ant can understand the elephant, right? So you think he doesn't believe in God? No. Interesting thing is that even though philosophically, logically, he doesn't believe in God, but Kant actually believed so-called existence of God on ethical, moral ground. Two things Kant believed. Actually, he used the word believe. That is a radical evil and the ethical necessity of God. You know, some of you heard of Kant back in whatever, general education class. Do you remember Kant is known for so-called deontological ethic? What is a deontological ethic? You do what is right because it is right, not because it's a good, not because it brings some kind of a, you know a good value. You do good. I mean, you do right because it's right, right? The mythical whatever maxim, you know, categorical imperativism, whatever that is. So Kant he said. You know, for instance, saying, you know, uh, uh, telling the truth is always good for everybody, not just for you, for whole society cannot exist without honesty. But people lie. There's a radical evil, absurdity of evil in human existence. We do evil things without good reason. So that's what it means, radical evil is out there. And then Kant said, so, without God, People will do all kinds of radical, evil things for wrong reasons or bad reasons, and there will be trouble. So he said, basically, we need to believe God as a judge. In one word, Kant said, without God, there's no accountability of sin and crime. So here is a father of agnosticism who believes in sin. Sin is a theological category. If you don't believe in God, you can do whatever you want. But if you believe in God, then you have to be careful what you do. I personally live for the God's judgment. Yes, I do. Because I see a lot of evil in this world. I know a lot of evil people die without the human judgment. So I call out God's judgment, including me. And also, now that I know Son of God died for me, for my sin, and then he gave his Holy Spirit, for me to live a holy life, whatever the sanctified life, I want to stand before God's judgment, not as a defendant, but as a witness. 
I hope you do too. Now, in this verse, most amazing thing is the second verse, second phrase. David didn't say, I have sinned against you. What did he say second time? Against you alone. You only. You know, first time I read this psalm, I wonder why in the world David said this. Didn't he forget that his sin has many collateral damages? Didn't his sin cost not just the life of Uriah, but the life of other Israelite soldiers? You know, how about their families? All the families are innocent and obedient soldiers. So why did David say his sin was only against God? Listen to me very carefully. David recognized that his sin broke the heart of God more than anyone's heart. His sin broke the heart of God more than anyone's. It is God who felt the most pain at David's failure because God loved David most. Do you know your sin hurt God more than anyone, including yourself, because God loves you more than anyone, including yourself? You know, whenever people that we care about, they fail, we feel the pain. Isn't it why we cry and rejoice with our favorite, you know, teams, uh, you know, loss or victory? You know, last week, the, when the Boston Celtics lost the championship to was the Golden State Warriors. Who feels the pain of a Boston Celtics more than the Celtics fan, right? The reason I'm not a Cowboy fan, because when I came to Dallas, I always, you know, sounds like they're, they're always hopeful. We, you know, another Super Bowl. And then at the end, they, they lose. They lose, you know, they just fall down, fall down, you know, flat, flat out. They lose the worst team, and then they're out, out of the playoff. So after a couple of years, I said, oh, I shouldn't love Dallas Cowboy. Because at the end, all I get is a pain. So, yeah, I'm not a Cowboy fan, and I don't recommend anybody to be a Cowboy fan. Unless, especially, we have a lot of uh, Texas transplants, so Cowboy, you know, forget about Cowboy, you know. Until they change the ownership, I don't think we have hope. That's, just, that's, that's my, you know, separate commentary. My, my point is, once again, is this. Sin hurts God most because he loves us most. Here we learn most important truths of a confession. That is, true confession and true repentance gear to pain of God more than peace of my heart. True confession is about God's pain more than my peace. David saw the true devastation of his sin, which is a torturing God. You know, there are many other people in the Bible who said, I've sinned, but no one spoke like David. For instance, Pharaoh said, I've sinned to, you know, Moses repeatedly, right? Every time the plague hit the, you know, Egypt, they, you know, Pharaoh said, I've sinned. You know, King Saul also said to the Samuel, prophet Samuel, that I've sinned. You know, many people in the Bible, we find they're saying that, I'm sorry, I've sinned. But they, are all, they all settled their confessions and apologies. Why? For their own safety, their own peace of mind, to avoid the punishment. Only they be connected with sin to God's suffering heart. You know, that's the difference between a Christian confession and other religious confession. 
Christians repent their sin, not because of some kind of utilitarian, consequential reasons, but because of a personal, relational reason. You know, our confession is geared to God's pain and deeply personal because of God's love, whereas other religious confessions usually come from fear and punishment, and their ultimate you know, goal is a protection of their personal interest. Yeah. So as a Buddhist, I try to live a good life. You know why? Because of a karma. You know, we believe in karma. Whatsoever goes around comes around kind of karma. We Christians repent. Not because of a karma, but because of a kindness of God. Who gave his son to save me and the Holy Spirit to sanctify me? Genesis chapter 39, there's a, another, you know, Incredible testimony. Do you remember Joseph? When Joseph was seduced by the wife of Potiphar, you know, his, uh, you know, master. And this uh, young man, you know, imagine young man was seduced by this, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, I bet the captain's wife probably not ugly, you know, she, she should be probably above average. And she is kind of, hey, Joseph. And what did Joseph say? Genesis 39, 9. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? Potiphar, my master? Against God. Against God. Who placed a kind master like a Potiphar in his life? That is a true Christian confession. So first thing we confess we really, really ask God, Lord, I'm so sorry that I disappointed you. Holy Spirit, help me to really sense the pain of God here and come back. So as David saw the gravity of his evil and sin in his relationship with God, I really pray that we also see the same Christ-suffering love for us on the cross so that we will recognize it, never take a sin for granted, and we never go easy forgiveness. Now let's go to the second point. The second point of uh, true repentance or moral confession is a cleansing. So let's look at the Psalm 51, verse 6 to 12. Let's read it responsibly one more time. Cleanse me with a hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have a crush to rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. As soon as David realized that his sin inflicted God with the pain more than anything else, he prayed God not only forgive him, but also give him a new heart, pure heart. He asked not just God's forgiveness, but fresh work of God. So he prayed for the cleansing and the purity of his heart. Now, for that, David used the imagery of a sanitizing and washing well known in the Old Testament. In verse 7, he said, cleanse me with a hyssop. Cleanse me with a hyssop. By the way, and I be translations of week. Some other English translations said that purge me, purge me with a hyssop. 
Now, what is the hyssop? Hyssop was the herbs prescribed by the Levitical law to cleanse anyone contacted a corpse, dead body, or anyone contracted the leprosy. So if you look at the numbers 19, 18, you know, you take a hyssop to, you know, to anybody touch the dead body, or Leviticus 19.3, you know, when somebody, you know, uh, claimed to be healed from leprosy, then you sprinkle with that water to, you know, to confirm that he's healed from defiling skin disease. David here recognizes the impurity is a kind of an extreme kind, like a contagious leprosy and stinking, you know, corpse. And he said he needs a strong remedy which has the greatest purifying power. So David saying is, what David saying here is this. Lord, do not just wash me gently, but wash me hard. You know, we all know the song that wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. You know how ancient people actually wash? They don't just rub the fabrics with their hands. What do they do? They beat it with a mallet, and sometimes they dash it on the, you know, rock. Sometimes they, you know, tread on it. I'm a former dry cleaner, so I know a little bit about washing. I know the difference between gentle cycle and uh, heavy-duty cycle. What David is saying here is, Lord, don't be gentle with me when you cleanse me. Do whatever it takes to take it out, all the stains from my soul. Take it out, all the stains of my soul. With that desperation, David called out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And the Hebrew word for create is a bara. This is a very key word in the Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Bara means that God created something totally new that didn't exist before. We're talking about Genesis 1, God creating every, everything out of nothing. David was asking the Lord, I am nothing, I'm a nothing but a dirty rack. Cleanse me, cleanse me with your goodness and kindness and whatever it takes. And the why, you know, David also cried out today that the, uh, you know, why did he cry out for the, you know, not only the purity of our heart, but look at the verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Old Testament said God does not dwell with an unclean heart, impure heart, unclean, you know, so unclean people and impure heart. And here we can see the David's greatest fear. What is the David's greatest fear? According to verse 11, David's greatest fear is the absence of God. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Did you notice that David was the first person in the Old Testament who prayed this prayer about the Holy Spirit? David was the first person in the Old Testament who realized the Holy Spirit is a person. As a person, he can leave him when he was disobeyed and dishonored. So when David asked God to leave the Holy Spirit in him and not to take the Holy Spirit from him, you know what? David is actually acknowledging that the Holy Spirit indwells in him 
means that he is temple of the Holy Spirit. When was when did you hear that uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells in us? Do you guys remember 1 Corinthians you know, 6, 19, when Paul said, don't you know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but bought with the price of a son of God. You know, before Paul wrote about Holy Spirit in our body as his temple, David teaches us this truth that true confession creates a thirst for the purity of our heart. And the, where does the purity of our heart come from? Through the Holy Spirit and God's Word. Holy Spirit, when He works in us, He works through God's Word. Psalm 199 said, the, uh, How can young man keep his heart pure? By meditating God's Word. Now, that is David's greatest fear. Absence of God from his heart. Absence of God. Absence of God. Absence of the Holy Spirit. That's what David feared the most. So let me ask you, what is your greatest fear today? What is your real greatest fear? Let's be honest. You know, we hear the sound, you know, alarm sound of a coming recession. We already feel the pain of this high, you know, gas prices. Even in Texas, you know, never imagine, you know that we're paying almost $5. So what is the greatest fear? Loss of job? You know, absence of some, you know, meaningful relationship, dating relationship? Or your child will become a troublemaker? Do we really fear the absence of God in our heart and lack of a spiritual hunger and thirst in our heart and our children's heart? I want to say something very relevant and important today. That is about mental health, because a lot of people talk about mental health. Since the pandemic began, mental health became like a forefront of all news media and every conversation. And I'm also recognizing the importance of mental health. But let me tell you this. You know, key missing point, key focal point of mental health is God. Who created our ment or mind? God is the one who created us. You know, it's good to have a counselor, therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist. Good to have some kind of medicine to balance whatever chemical imbalance. Those are good, but they are not healing. They might give us just a relief or pause or comfort. Real healing of our heart and mind comes from the Lord, God of Shalom. Amen. And then Christians are so much into you know, talking about mental health without God, it's just I want to pull my hair. Because throughout the Christian history, there are a lot of saints who had a mental issues. Back then, there's no such term exists. But through their biography, for instance, I talked about Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther has all kinds of psychosomatic illnesses. I love Martin Luther because he is like me. You know, when I worry, my tummy reacts. So Martin Luther has insomnia, you know, indigestion, you know, constipation, and uh, you name it, all the nasty psychosomatic illness, Luther had it. He has a manic depression, you know. And the great French, you know, Jewish Christian thinker named uh, Simone Bay of a friends of the 20th century, she was sick. 
for most of our life. There Mother's Day, just this past Mother's Day. Do you guys remember the, the mother of a great Christian mother that I talked about? Anybody remember? I'll buy you dessert. Who is that mother? You. Anyway, Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. Did you know Susanna Wesley lost nine children out of 19? If you lose a half of your children, what kind of mental state do you think you will have? Not only that husband was totally ineffective, uncaring almost, semi-absentee you know, absentee father, yet Susanna Wesley raised great children like John Wesley, Charles Wesley, so forth. How do you think it's possible? Before we had all these you know, medicines, God of shalom, God of peace is out there. So brothers and sisters, Take a mental health seriously, but don't fight alone. Fight with God. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you out. Dig in God's word. Make God's word your claim. And stick to God. Because when we demand God with his promise, I'm sure God will, God will happy to you know, demonstrate his love for us. Don't fight alone. Fight with the Holy Spirit. Fight for God. Let me move quickly to the conclusion. Final component of a true repentance and a moral confession. This is amazing because I hear, I see the power of repentance. This is what I live for the repentance. Let me read uh, uh, verse 13. This part I'll just read along. Then I will teach. You know, David said, Lord, give me forgiveness. Give me fresh heart. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. So that sinners will turn back to your turn back to you. Transgressors and sinners. Do you remember the transgression and sin in the earlier in verse 1 and 2? Now, what is the David saying? Lord, heal me, forgive me, so that I can help others who are struggling. That's what David is saying. And then verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take a pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken heart, a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please to prosper Zion, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of a righteous and burnt offerings offered whole, and then bowls will be offered on your altar. A lot of Jewish you know, tradition, and actually biblical scholars say, this, the last conclusion of Psalm 51 was a theology of a spiritual revival and repentance when Israelite in the Babylonian exile. Because when Israelite went to Babylonian, first question they had was, we prayed to God in Temple of Jerusalem, how come God didn't save us? And punishing us through the Gentiles and humiliated us like a prisoner of a war. And they began to read the Psalms. And when they read this, they realized the true sacrifice God wants is not animal sacrifice. It is our broken heart and contrite spirit.
there. Jewish people will realize that God is more delighted in the redeemed relationship, repentant in a relationship, more than any religious ritual. So they said this last part of Psalm 51 became a theology of repentance and revival in the rest of Jewish history. What about us? What about us? Many of you, those of you in the forest, I, we want to say, forest is a very peculiar church. We are kind of strange church. Yeah, I have to tell you. Yeah, I don't know what strange means, but we are strange. I think we are peculiar. And one peculiar thing about our church is that we really focus on small group called house church ministry. For us, it's not just another small group program. For us, this is where we live or die, seriously. All our discipleship, Bible study, is, exists for that one. If a house church doesn't work, we will fold up today. Yeah, seriously. If we, I heard that one church that's struggling with the house church ministry, because I'm actually monthly uh, pastor's fellowship with the pastors who are doing house church, and they had a sort of a vote of confidence about the house church. And um, he was so grateful that a majority of his member, after five years, they said, let's continue our church. So he was grateful. I wonder, if we have the vote of confidence, what will we say? But regardless of your, you know, your vote, if we don't do a house church, I'm out of here. Yeah, I'll take it as a, you don't want me to be a pastor because only church that I'll pastor is a church of a house church. Why? Let me tell you why. Dorothy Sayer, friend of C.S. Lewis, and the famous uh, British detective novel writer, it's like Agatha Christie, Agatha, what is Agatha Christie, kind of, uh, you know, fame. And then she also wrote a great book that I recommend, is uh, Man Born to be a King. It's a great book. It's uh, actually a drama about the Jesus life. And uh, she said once this, Christ did not suffer so that we will not suffer, but our suffering will be like his. Think about it. Christ did not suffer so that we will not suffer. Christ didn't suffer to stop our suffering, but to make our suffering like his. Is that the Christology you have? Is that the, you know, biblical, you know, Jesus that you have? Absolutely. What does it mean that our suffering will be like a Christ? it will be redemptive suffering. It will be meaningful suffering. Our suffering will help other people. Okay? That's what she meant. You know, Christ didn't suffer so that we can have a just, you know, and then just we have a grace to sin anything and still at the end we go to heaven. That's not why Christ suffered. Christ suffered so we'll be born again, live again like a Christ, and especially our suffering will be meaningful and salvific like a Christ. Now, I want to recommend one book today. I, I should have recommended them. You probably heard me quote this book. It's a book written by Henry Nouwen. It's called The Wounded Healer. Henry Nouwen uh, used to teach at Harvard University. He's a Catholic you know, uh, priest who lived with uh, dis people of uh, disabilities. And he actually said those uh, disabled people helped him deepen his uh, faith. So in that book, I just want to read a couple of quotes there. He said, 
perhaps the main task of a minister, that means a pastor and the house church shepherd, all of us ministering, is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reason. My job is not prevent you, know, you from suffering, but prevent you from suffering for wrong reason. Just as Dorothy said, there is a good suffering. Let me tell you, life is suffering at the end. We all suffer. If you try to get out of suffering in life, you know, dating is fun, but at the end it's suffering. You know, wedding is a suffering. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been involved in a couple of wedding plans right now. It's suffering. Marriage, main suffering. <laughs> Parenting, suffering. I mean, it's a joy. There's a lot of good things, but don't tell me, you know, life is a pure joy and bliss. You know, actually, the great things I've done in my, things that I find meaningful, they're all suffering. You know? I better careful here. So, and then Henry Lawrence said this, when we become aware that we do not have to escape our pain, but that we can mobilize our pains into the common search for life, those very pains are transformed from the expression of a despairs into the signs of a hope. Ah, love it. The next quote. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? Because through our common search, hospitality becomes a community. Commun hospitality becomes a community as they create the unity because of the shared confession about basic brokenness on a shared hope. Brothers and uh, let me read one more and then let me wrap. When our wounds cease to be a source of a shame and becomes a source of a healing, we have become wounded healers. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy and life. His humiliation brought the glory. His rejection brought the community of love. For us who want to be a biblical community of wounded healers. We don't want to be a church that with everyone seems to be very happy and, uh, you know, uh, without problem. That is a fake. We don't want to be fake church. We don't want to be, seriously. We don't want to, we don't want our members to wear, you know, facade every time we're together. That is a fake church, seriously. Of course, Sunday we cannot be, this is too big. But at least in the house church, in the small group, with a confidentiality, you can really share your struggle and even your wounds and the shames. This is a promised word from God for the house church and the true biblical church. It's James 5.16 said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You know, God's way of once again our mental health, we confess our struggle to each other. And we hear each other, we pray for each other, and the Spirit of God will heal us. There are occasions when I hear somebody really bring out the real shameful kind of experience of life. Amazing thing, it doesn't become just a her, her healing, my healing too. Have you had an experience? Have you had an experience in your house church? Who doesn't have that experience in the house church? Let me know your house church. 
I will avoid you. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Okay, that's. Well, brothers and sisters, let me, let me, let me see this. David will continue to study, failed big time, struggled because of his uh, one and only, this huge, you know, stigma and shameful, you know, sin. But David reflected on his mistake and publicly, you know, shared it. And do you know how many people thank David for Psalm 51? Psalm 51 saved many people. Let us really be a wounded healer. Let us make a forest, a forest of a wounded healer. So that we can really, really get naked and be not ashamed of it. Because our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not ashamed of loving us as he got naked on the cross. Let's pray.